0: Chapter 4 Internal Upheaval and Restructure So never make mere men a cause for pride. There is nothing to boast about in anything human. 1 Corinthians 3.21 New English Bible and Jerusalem Bible The information in the book Aid to Bible Understanding presented about elders doubtless began the process. Till then, congregations had been under the supervision of a single person, the congregation overseer. His replacement by a body of elders, of necessity, raised questions about branch organizations where one man was the overseer for a whole country, much as a bishop or archbishop has under his supervision a large region composed of many congregations. And the central headquarters had its president— to whom i had personally referred in addressing a seminar for branch overseers in brooklyn as the presiding overseer for all congregations earthwide the footnote reads president nor was sitting on the platform at the time and expressed no disagreement with the description Evidently, the apparent anomaly, the contrast between the situation in the congregations and that at the international headquarters, is what led to the tail wagging the dog talk and Watchtower articles, since these endeavored to explain away the difference existing between the situation in the congregations and that at the central headquarters. It is almost certain that, at the same time, these articles were meant to send out a signal to voting members of the corporation that they should not try to express themselves through vote to effect some change in the headquarters structure, or to express themselves as regards the membership of the governing body and its administration. The year of that talk, 1971, President Nor decided to allow the governing body to review and pass judgment on a book entitled, Organization for Kingdom Preaching and Disciple-Making, a form of church manual setting out organizational structure and policy governing the entire arrangement, from the headquarters through to the branches, districts and circuits, and on to the congregations. The governing body was not asked to supply the material for the book. The president had assigned the project of the book's development to Carl Adams, the overseer of the writing department, not a governing body member, nor one professing to be of the Anointed. He, in turn, had assigned Ed Dunlap and myself to collaborate with him in the manual's development, each of us writing about one-third of the material. The footnote reads, I was assigned chapters on Your Service to God, Safeguarding the Cleanness of the Congregation, and Endurance that Results in Divine Approval. The material we developed presented the relationship of the governing body and the corporations in harmony with the Watchtower articles, stressing that the dog should wag the tail, and not vice versa. When certain points relating to this came before the body, they provoked rather heated discussion. President Knorr expressed himself clearly as feeling that there was an effort to take over his responsibility and work. He stressed that the governing body was to concern itself strictly with the spiritual matters, and that the corporation would handle the rest. But, as the body members knew, the spiritual matters allotted to them at that stage consisted almost entirely of the near ritual of approving appointments of largely unknown persons to traveling overseer work, and the handling of the constant flow of questions about disfellowshipping matters. At certain points in the discussion, I expressed my understanding that other matters of a spiritual nature were likewise the responsibility of the body. I could not personally harmonize the existing monarchical arrangement with Jesus' statement that all you are brothers, and your leader is one, the Christ, that the rulers of the nations lord it over them, and the great men wield authority over them, but this is not the way among you. The footnote references Matthew 23, verse 8 and 10, and Matthew 20, verses 25 and 26. It simply did not seem honest to say what had been said in the 1971 Watchtower articles, and then not carry it out. In each case of my doing so, however, the President took the remarks very personally, speaking at great length, his voice tense and forceful, saying that, quote, Evidently, some were not satisfied with the way he was handling his job. He would go into great detail as to the work he was performing, and then he would say, "'Now apparently some don't want me to handle things any more,' and that perhaps he should, quote, "'bring it all down here and turn it over to Ray Franz and let him handle it.'" I found it hard to believe that he could so totally miss the essential point of my comments that I was expressing myself in favor of a body arrangement, not in favor of a transferal of authority from one individual administrator to another individual administrator. Each time I would explain this to him, making plain that what was said was never meant as any kind of personal attack, that I did not feel that any one individual should take on the responsibilities under discussion, but rather that my understanding from the Bible and from the Watchtower was that they were matters for a body of persons to deal with. I said again and again that if it were a matter of one person handling everything, then he would be my choice, that I felt he had simply been doing what he felt he should do, and what had always been done in the past, that I had no complaint about his doing so. This did not seem to make any impression, however, and realizing that anything I said along this line would simply provoke anger, after a few attempts i gave up on these occasions the remainder of the body members sat observed and said nothing what happened a few years later therefore came as a surprise nothing further developed until the year nineteen seventy five consider now what the organization's nineteen ninety three history book jehovah's witnesses proclaimers of god's kingdom relates as to what then took place An event described as, quote, one of the most significant organizational readjustments in the modern day history of Jehovah's Witnesses. On pages 108 and 109, we read Organizational Readjustments. By 1976, Brother Noor had worked diligently as president of the Watchtower Society for over three decades. He had traveled the globe many times over, visiting and encouraging missionaries, teaching and instructing branch office personnel. He was privileged to see the number of active witnesses increase from 117,209 in 1942 to 2,248,390 in 1976. But by the summer of 1976, 71-year-old N. H. Nor had noticed that he had a tendency to bump into things. Subsequent tests indicated that he was suffering from an inoperable brain tumor. He struggled to continue to carry a workload for some months, but his physical prognosis was poor. Would his failing health impede the forward movement of the work? Enlargement of the governing body had already begun in 1971. During 1975, there were 17 members. Throughout much of that year, the Governing Body had given serious and prayerful consideration to how they could best care for all that is involved in the global preaching and teaching work outlined in God's Word for our day, Matthew twenty eight nineteen twenty. 20. On December 4, 1975, the Governing Body had unanimously approved one of the most significant organizational readjustments in the modern-day history of Jehovah's Witnesses. Starting January 1, 1976, all the activities of the Watchtower Society and of the congregations of Jehovah's Witnesses around the earth had been brought under the supervision of six administrative committees of the governing body. In harmony with that arrangement, on February 1, 1976, changes had been put into effect in all branch offices of the society around the earth. No longer was each branch supervised by one branch overseer. But three or more mature men served as a branch committee, with one member serving as the permanent coordinator. After the committees had been operating for some months, the governing body observed, quote, "It has proved beneficial to have a number of brothers taking counsel together to consider the interests of the kingdom work." Proverbs 11:14, chapter 15, verse 22, and chapter 24, verse 6. The book thus leads the reader to believe that the failing health of the society's third president, Nathan Knorr, in late 1975 was somehow involved in this major event in the organization's history, was perhaps a motivating reason for it. All the men who were on the governing body at that time know that this picture is not true. Nor's health problem, in reality, became evident after the issue had arisen leading to the change, and hence was purely coincidental. It neither gave rise to the issue, nor was it a factor in the governing body discussions and decisions. There is a clear lack of candor in the picture presented. What then did happen? In 1975, two Bethel elders, Malcolm Allen, a senior member of the service department, and Robert Lang, the assistant Bethel home overseer, wrote letters to the governing body expressing concern over certain conditions prevalent within the headquarters staff, specifically referring to an atmosphere of fear generated by those having oversight and a growing feeling of discouragement and resultant discontent. At that time, anyone applying for service at headquarters, Bethel Service, had to agree to stay a minimum of four years. Most of the applicants were young men, 19 and 20 years of age. Four years equaled one-fifth of the life they had thus far lived. When at the meal tables, I often asked the person next to me, How long have you been here? In the ten years I had by now spent at headquarters, I had never heard one of these young men respond by saying in round figures, about a year or about two years. Invariably, the answer was, one and seven, two and five, three and one, and so forth, always giving the year or years and the exact number of months. I could not help but think of the way men serving a prison sentence often follow a similar practice of marking off time. Generally it was difficult to get these young men to express themselves about their service at headquarters. As I learned from the friends who worked more closely with them, they were unwilling to say much in an open way since they feared that anything they said that was not positive would cause them to be classed as what was popularly called a BA, someone with a bad attitude. Many felt like cogs in a machine, viewed as workers, but not as persons. Job insecurity resulted from knowing that they could be shifted at any time to work another assignment without any previous discussion, and often with no explanation for the change made. Management employee lines were clearly drawn and carefully maintained. The monthly allowance of $14 often barely covered, and in some cases was less than their transportation costs going to and from the Kingdom Hall meetings. Those whose family or friends were more affluent had no problems as they received outside assistance, but others rarely could afford anything beyond bare necessities. Those from more distant points, particularly those from the western states, might find it virtually impossible to travel and spend vacations with their families, particularly if they came from a poor family. Yet, they were regularly hearing greetings passed on to the Bethel family from members of the governing body and others as they traveled around the country and to other parts of the world giving talks. They saw the corporation officers driving new Oldsmobiles bought by the society and serviced and cleaned by workers like themselves. Their work schedule, then consisting of 8 hours and 40 minutes each day and 4 hours on Saturday mornings, combined with attendance at meetings three times a week, plus the weekly witnessing activity, seemed to many to make their lives very cramped, routine, tiring. But, They knew that to lessen up in any of these areas would undoubtedly put them in the B.A. class and result in their being called to a meeting designed to correct their attitude. The letters by the two Bethel elders touched on these areas, but without going into detail. The President again seemed to feel, unfortunately, that this constituted criticism of his administration. HE EXPRESSED HIMSELF TO THE GOVERNING BODY AS WANTING A HEARING TO BE HELD ON THE MATTER, AND, ON APRIL 2, 1975, THIS WAS DONE. A NUMBER OF BETHEL ELDERS SPOKE, AND MANY OF THE EARLIER-MENTIONED SPECIFICS WERE THERE aired. THOSE SPEAKING DID NOT INDULGE IN PERSONALITIES, AND MADE NO DEMANDS, but they stressed the need for more consideration of the individual, for brotherly communication, and the benefit of letting those close to problems share in decisions and solutions. As the assistant Bethel home overseer Robert Lang put it, quote, We seem more concerned about production than people. The staff doctor, Dr. Dixon, related that he frequently received visits from married couples distressed due to the inability of the wives to cope with the pressures and keep up with the demanding schedule, many of the women breaking into tears when talking to him. A week later, April 9th, the official minutes of the governing body session stated, Quote, Comments were made on the relationship of the governing body and the corporations and what was published in the Watchtower of December 15, 1971. It was agreed that a committee of five, made up of L.K. Greenleys, A.D. Schroeder, R.V. Franz, D. Sidlik, and J.C. Booth, go into matters concerning the subject and the duties of the officers of the corporations and related matters, and take into consideration the thoughts of N. H. Nor, F. W. Friends, and G. Sutier, who are the officers of the two societies, and then bring recommendations. The whole idea is to strengthen the unity of the organization. At a session three weeks later, April 30th, President Knorr surprised us by making a motion that henceforth all matters be decided by a two-thirds vote of the active membership, which by then numbered 17. The footnote reads, The College of Cardinals of the Catholic Church requires a similar two-thirds majority when voting for a papal successor. I think it quite possible that Knorr and Fred Franz felt it unlikely that such a decisive majority of members would vote for a change. Following this, the official minutes of that session relate. Quote, L.K. Greenlees then began his report from the Committee of Five on Brother Noor's request to tell him what he should do. And the footnote reads, It was President Noor who had nominated the five of us serving on this committee. At the first meeting of the Committee of Five it was voted on my motion that Leo Greenlees serve as chairman. The committee considered the watchtower of December 15, 1971, paragraph 29, very carefully also page 760. The committee feels that today the governing body should be directing the corporations and not the other way around. The corporations should recognize that the governing body of 17 members has the responsibility to administer the work in the congregations throughout the world. There has been a delay of putting the arrangement into effect at Bethel as compared to the congregations. There has been confusion. We do not want a dual organization. There followed a lengthy discussion of questions relating to the governing body and the corporations and to the President, with comments by all members present. At the close of the day, a motion was proposed by N.H. Knorr, followed by a comment by E.C. Chitty. L.K. Greenleys also presented a motion. It was agreed that the three should be Xeroxed and copies given to all members and meet again the next day at 8 a.m there would be time to pray over the matter which is so important the xeroxed motions referred to read as follows n.h. Knorr I move the governing body take over responsibility of looking after the work directed in the charter of the Pennsylvania Corporation and assume the responsibilities set out in the charter of Pennsylvania Corporation and all other corporations throughout the world used by Jehovah's Witnesses. E.C. Chitty said, quote, To take over means relieve the other party. I believe for my part the responsibility stays as it is. Rather, it would be right to say, supervise the responsibility. L.K. Greenlee said, Quote, I move that the governing body undertake in harmony with the Scriptures the full responsibility and authority for the administration and supervision of the worldwide association of Jehovah's Witnesses and their activities, and that all members and officers of any and all corporations used by Jehovah's Witnesses will act in harmony with and under direction of this governing body, that this enhanced relationship between the governing body and the corporations go into effect as soon as can reasonably be done without hurt or damage to the kingdom work. On the next day, May 1, 1975, there was again a long discussion. In particular, the Vice President, who had written the watchtower articles referred to, objected to the proposals made and to any change in the existing setup any reduction of the corporation presidents authority this brought to mind and was in harmony with his remarks to me back in 1971 that he thought Jesus Christ would direct the organization through a single person on down to the time when the new order came he made no comment on the evident contradiction between the presentation made in the watchtower articles and their bold statements about the governing body using the corporations as mere instruments and the three motions made, each of which showed that the makers, including the President himself, recognized that the governing body did not at that time supervise the corporations. Discussion went back and forth. A turning point seemed to come with remarks made by Grant Sudhir, the crisp-speaking Secretary-Treasurer of the Society's principal corporations. Different from the comments made till then by those favoring a change, his expressions were quite personal, seemingly the release of a long pent-up feeling about the president, whom he directly named. While discussing the authority structure, he made no specific charges, except as regards the right to make a certain change in his personal room that he had requested and had been denied. But as he went on, his face became flushed, his jaw muscles flexed, and his words became more intense. He closed with the remark, quote, I say, if we're going to be a governing body, then let's get to governing. I haven't been doing any governing till now. Those words hit me hard enough that I am satisfied that I have remembered and recorded them as said. Whether they were meant to convey the sense they did is, of course, beyond my knowing, and they may well have been merely a momentary outburst, not indicative of any heartfelt motive. At any rate, they served to make me think very seriously about the matter of right motivation, and I felt considerable concern that whatever should come of this whole affair might be the result of a sincere desire on the part of all involved to hold more closely to Bible principles and patterns, and not for any other reason. I found the whole session disturbing, mainly because the general spirit did not seem to conform to what one would expect of a Christian body. However, shortly after these last-mentioned comments by the secretary-treasurer, Nathan Knorr evidently reached a decision, and made a lengthy statement, taken down in shorthand by Milton Henschel, who had made certain suggestions himself, and who then acted as secretary for the body. The footnote reads, Milton Henschel, tall and of generally serious mien, spoke fairly seldom in discussions but when he did, it was usually with considerable firmness, definiteness. In his younger years, he had been President Noor's personal secretary. At the time here being discussed, he was in his middle fifties. As recorded in the official minutes, the President's statement included these expressions. Quote, I think it would be a very good thing for the Governing Body to follow through along the lines that Brother Henschel has mentioned and design a program having in mind what the Watchtower says, that the Governing Body is Governing Body of Jehovah's Witnesses. I am not going to argue for or against it. In my opinion, it is not necessary. The Watchtower has stated it. It will be the Governing Body who will have overall guiding power and influence. They will take their responsibility as governing body and direct through different divisions. They will set up, and they will have an organization. At the end, he said, I make that a motion. Somewhat to my surprise, his motion was seconded by F. W. Franz, the vice president. It was adopted unanimously by the body as a whole. The bold language of the watchtower of four years previous seemed about to change from mere words into fact. From the expressions made by the president, it appeared that a smooth transition lay ahead. This is the picture of harmonious unity the book Jehovah's Witnesses Proclaimers of God's Kingdom portrays. It was, instead, only a lull preceding the stormiest period of all. In the months that followed, The appointed committee of five met with all members of the Governing Body individually and with 33 other long-time members of the Headquarters staff. By far, the majority favored a reorganization. The committee drew up detailed proposals for an arrangement of Governing Body committees to handle different facets of the worldwide activity. Of the 17 Governing Body members personally interviewed, 11 indicated basic approval. Of the remaining six, George Genghis, a warm and effervescent Greek, and one of the oldest members of the body, was very uncertain, changeable in his expressions according to the mood of the moment. Charles Fickle, an Eastern European, had been a society director many years before, but had been removed under the charge of having compromised his integrity by the oath he took when obtaining American citizenship. He was now among the most recent appointees to the body and, of a very mild nature, rarely shared in the discussion, consistently voting whichever way the majority went, and he had little to say on this issue. Lloyd Berry, a New Zealander, and also a recent addition to the body, had come to Brooklyn after a number of years as branch overseer in Japan, where witness activity had seen phenomenal growth. He expressed very strong misgivings about the recommendations particularly the decentralizing effect it would have as regards the presidency, and in the letter dated September 5th, 1975, he characterized the recommended change as revolutionary. Bill Jackson, a down-to-earth, unassuming Texan, not as rare as some would make it appear, had spent most of his life at headquarters, and, like Barry, he felt that things should be left very much as they were— especially since good numerical increases had come under the existing administration. The strongest voices of opposition were those of the President and the Vice-President, the maker and seconder of the motion earlier quoted. They were, in fact, publicly vocal in their opposition. During the period the appointed Committee of Five was interviewing long-time staff members to get their viewpoint, the president's turn to preside at the head of the Bethel table for one week came up. For several mornings, he used the opportunity to discuss, before the 1,200 or more Bethel family members in the several dining rooms, all tied in by sound and television, what he called the investigation going on, the committee of five's interviews, saying that some persons favored changing things that had been done a certain way for the whole life of the organization. He asked again and again, Where is there proof that things aren't working well, that a change is needed? He said that the investigation was endeavoring to prove this family is bad, but said he was confident that a few complainers would not overwhelm the joy of the majority. He urged all to have faith in the society, pointing to its many accomplishments. At one point, he said with great force and feeling that the changes some wanted to make as to the Bethel family and its work and organization, quote, will be made over my dead body. The footnote reads, words in quotations are from notes written down at the time the words were spoken. They were, of course, heard by over a thousand persons in each case. In all fairness to Nathan Knorr, it must be said that he undoubtedly believed that the then-existing arrangement was the right one. He knew that the vice-president, the organization's most respected scholar, and the one he relied upon to handle scriptural matters, felt that way. Knorr was basically an affable person, capable of warmth. When he was not in his president's uniform or role, I genuinely enjoyed my association with him. However, his official position, as is so often the case, did not generally let that side of him be seen, and, again doubtless due to his feeling that the role he carried was according to God's will, he inclined to react very quickly and forcefully to any apparent infringement upon his presidential authority. People learned not to do this. For all that, I seriously doubt that Nathan would have gone along with some of the harsh actions that were later to come from the collective body that inherited his presidential authority. I can empathize with his feelings and reaction, having served for many years as a branch overseer in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, where I was to be, according to the prevailing organizational viewpoint, the top man in the country, the president's personal representative. My efforts to act in accord with this viewpoint made me constantly aware of position and the need to uphold that position. I found by hard experience, however, that trying to live up to that organizational concept did not contribute to pleasant relations with others, and that it made my own life unpleasant, and the confrontations it produced were not something I felt at all suited for by nature and after a while I simply gave up trying to emulate what I had seen at headquarters. My life became much more enjoyable as a result, and I found the overall effect far more productive and beneficial. The president's last-mentioned words, over my dead body, nearly proved prophetic. At the time of saying them, he evidently had already developed a malignant tumor on his brain, though this did not become known until after the reorganization was definitely a fait accompli, its completion taking place officially on January 1st, 1976, and Noor's death occurring a year and a half later, on June 8th, 1977. The President's quite vocal opposition was matched, perhaps even surpassed, by that of the Vice President. At the September 7, 1975, graduation program for the Missionary School of Gilead, attended by the Bethel family members and invited guests, largely relatives and friends of the graduating class, the vice president gave a talk, a customary feature of each graduation program. Fred Franz had an inimitable, often dramatic, even melodramatic, speaking style. What follows is from an exact copy of his talk but the written words cannot convey the inflections, the spirit, the flavor, even the occasional sarcasm that came through in the talk itself. The footnote reads, A tape recording of this entire talk, with accompanying brief observations, is now available through Commentary Press. His opening words gave a clear indication as to where the talk was headed, Having in mind that a committee duly appointed by the governing body was at that very time making a proposal that the training, assignment, and supervision of missionaries be directed by the governing body rather than by the corporations, we may note his opening expression. He began saying, Quote, This class is being sent forth in collaboration with the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of New York Incorporated by the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of Pennsylvania. Now, the question is raised today, what right does the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society have to send missionaries out into the field? Who authorized the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of Pennsylvania to send missionaries all around the globe? Now, such a challenging question may be raised with an earlier circumstance, and that is based on the fact that the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society was founded by a man who became an evangelizer of world note, one of the most eminent evangelizers of this 20th century, and who especially attained global fame when he made his trip around the world in the year 1912. That man was Charles Taze Russell of Allegheny, Pennsylvania. The focus was clearly on the corporation. The governing body was not mentioned. Of course, no one had raised the challenging question he was here describing. The real issue in the governing body was whether the talk he had given four years before about the relationship between the body and the corporation was to be taken seriously however he went on to say in his distinctive manner now i've wondered about this matter maybe you have too just how did russell become an evangelizer who made him an evangelizer the various religious establishments of christendom were in operation For instance, there was the Anglican Church with its ruling body, and the Protestant Episcopal Church with its ruling body. There was the Methodist Church with its conference. There was also the Presbyterian Church to which Russell used to belong with its synod. There was also the Congregational Church, which Russell joined with its central congregation. But by none of these controlling organizations was Russell made an evangelizer, or missionary. Without directly or openly referring to the Governing Body, he had managed to introduce it into the discussion indirectly by referring to these ruling bodies under their various names. He could also have mentioned the Jesuits, who have an administration bearing this name, Governing Body. But the point made was that no such a governing body had anything to do with or exercised any authority toward this founder of the Watchtower Corporation. Russell was an independent, not subject to any of them. The governing body had appointed the Committee of Five, and that committee was recommending that permanent committees be formed to care for the direction of the work worldwide. Thus, these following words of the Vice President's talk, take on added significance, as, after speaking of the 70 disciples Jesus sent out, he told the graduating class, Now, we're not to imagine that by sending the 70 evangelizers, by sending them forth by twos, the Lord Jesus Christ was not making each two a committee, so that for the 70 evangelizers there were 35 committees of two you're being sent forth today after your graduation as missionaries, uh, two being sent to Bolivia, and then there are others who are being sent maybe four or six or eight to a different country as assignment for work. Now don't you missionaries think because you're being sent forth two together or maybe four or six or maybe eight, that you were being sent forth as a committee to take over the work for the land to which you were assigned? No such thing. You are being sent forth as individual missionaries to cooperate together and to cooperate with the branch of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, which is operating and directing the work in the land to which you are assigned to act as an evangelizer. So don't get this committee idea into your head. In all this, the Governing Body remained conspicuous by its absence eclipsed by the corporation. Not a single person had suggested that the missionaries be sent out as committees, or that they take over the work in their assigned lands, and the idea of their doing so had undoubtedly never entered their minds. But this served as a means for introducing the idea of committees and discrediting the concept. The talk then went on to discuss Philip, the evangelizer, raising, once more, the question as to who made him an evangelizer or missionary. The footnote reads, see Acts 8, 5-13, and chapter 21, verse 8. The vice president referred to the account in Acts chapter 6, where the apostles, as a body, found it necessary to appoint seven men, including Philip, to care for food distribution so as to end complaints being made of discrimination against certain widows. He then said, Well now, if you look up the McClintock and Strong's Cyclopedia of Religious Knowledge, you'll find that the work that the Apostles assigned to these seven men is called a semi-secular work. But the Apostles didn't want that semi-secular work, they unloaded it onto these seven men and said, you take care of that. Well, we're going to specialize on prayers and teaching. Now, were these twelve apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ by unloading this responsibility for taking care of tables, were they making of themselves mere figureheads in the congregation of God and of Jesus Christ? They certainly were not making themselves figureheads because they specialized on spiritual things. To those Governing Body members who had heard the President emphasize that the Governing Body should care for the strictly spiritual things and leave the rest to the corporation, the Vice President's words had a familiar ring. Strangely, however, about half of the men on the body were spending their eight hours and 40 minutes of each day in just such a semi-secular work. Dan Sidlick and Charles Fickle worked in the factory. Leo Greenlees handled insurance and related matters for the secretary treasurer's office. John Booth had oversight of the Bethel kitchen. Bill Jackson handled legal matters and documents. Grant Sutier was daily occupied in financial matters, investments, stocks, wills, And Milton Henschel and the president himself, who controlled all these assignments of work, spent considerable time in the kind of semi-secular work that the vice president said should be unloaded for others to care for. The vice president's exposition now took a strange turn, one that actually contradicted the official teaching as to the divine authority for a governing body from the first century onward. The history of Paul, the converted Saul, was first related, that after his conversion, when he went to Jerusalem, he saw only two of the apostles, not the whole body of them, and how he eventually came to Antioch in Syria. Having remarked that in selecting and appointing Saul of Tarsus, Christ, quote, took direct action without consulting any man or body of men on earth, the vice president now presented a sort of tale of two cities in which the role of Antioch was set over against that of Jerusalem as regards the missionary activity of Paul and Barnabas. In what follows, keep in mind the existing official watchtower teaching that there was a governing body based in Jerusalem that exercised supervisory direction over all congregations of Christians in all places and that in this... It was a model for the present day governing body of Jehovah's Witnesses. In relating the Holy Spirit's calling of Paul and Barnabas to missionary activity, the Vice President continually emphasized that this was all done through the Antioch congregation, hence, not through Jerusalem, where the apostolic body was located. The footnote reads it should be remembered that the whole basis for the witnesses teaching of a governing body arrangement and authority is that there was such an arrangement operating from Jerusalem in Bible times. The vice president went on to say and then all of a sudden as he Paul was serving in Antioch in Syria not in Israel but in Syria Why, God's Spirit spoke to that congregation there in Antioch and said, Now of all things you set aside, you, this congregation in Antioch, you set aside these two men, namely Barnabas and Saul, for the work for which I have commissioned them. And so the Antioch congregation did that, and they laid their hands upon Paul, or Saul, and Barnabas, and sent them forth. And they went forth by the Holy Spirit operating through the Antioch congregation, and they went out on their first missionary assignment. So, you see, the Lord Jesus Christ was acting as head of the congregation and taking action directly, without consulting any body here on earth, what he could do and what he could not do and he acted in that way in regard to Saul and Barnabas, and they were both apostles of the Antioch congregation. At this point of the talk, I recall sitting there and saying to myself, does the man realize what he's saying? I know what his goal is, to de-emphasize the governing body, so as to maintain the authority of the corporation and its president, but does he realize the implication of what he is saying? In the process of attaining his goal, he is undermining the whole teaching and claim about the existence of a centralized first century governing body operating out of Jerusalem with earthwide authority to supervise and direct all congregations of true Christians everywhere in all matters. A concept that the Society's publications have built up in the minds of all Jehovah's Witnesses and to which the vast majority hold today. But the Vice President had by no means finished, and he drove the idea home with even greater force. Describing the completion of Paul and Barnabas's first missionary tour, he continued with growing intensity and dramatization. Quote, and where did they go? Where did they report? There's the record. You read it for yourself in the closing verses of the 14th chapter of Acts. They went back to Antioch, to the congregation there. And the account says that they related things in detail to them, to this congregation that had committed them to the undeserved kindness of God for the work that they had performed. So theirs were they reported... So the record says also that they stayed in Antioch not a little time. Now what happened? All of a sudden something occurred and Paul and Barnabas, they go up to Jerusalem. Well, what's the matter? What brings them up to Jerusalem? Well, is it the body of apostles and of other elders of the Jerusalem congregation that have summoned them up there and say, look here we have heard that you two men have gone out on a missionary tour and finished it and you haven't come up here to Jerusalem to report to us do you know who we are we are the council of Jerusalem don't you recognize the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ if you don't come up here in a hurry we're going to take disciplinary action against you is that what the account says Well, if they had acted that way toward Paul and Barnabas because they reported to the congregation by means of which the Holy Spirit had sent them out, then this council of apostles at Jerusalem and other elders of the Jewish congregation would have put themselves above the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. His points were completely valid. They were also completely contrary to the view presented in the Society's publications, which present a picture of Jerusalem as the seat of a governing body exercising full authority and direction over all Christians as Christ's agency, acting with divine authority. That is doubtless why, unlike other talks the Vice President had given, this one was never used as the basis for articles in the Watchtower magazine. For any individual witness to present such an argument today would be counted as heretical, rebellious speech. If actually applied as stated, his words would mean that any congregation on earth could send out its own missionaries if they believed Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit so directed, doing so without consulting anyone else, whether in Brooklyn or in a branch office. There was no question in my mind as to the quick and adverse reaction this would provoke from the society's headquarters and its offices. It would be viewed as a threat to their centralized authority, and any congregation doing this would in so many words be asked, Do you know who we are? Don't you recognize the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ operating through us? All that he said in this area was true, perfectly true but it was evidently no more meant to be applied in full force than the points that he made about four years earlier in the tail wagging the dog talk except that by the references to antioch he was clearly endeavoring to establish a parallel with the corporation as operating apart from the governing body The talk went on to show that the real reason Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem, as recorded in Acts chapter 15, was because Jerusalem itself had been the source of a serious problem for the Antioch congregation, men coming down from Jerusalem and stirring up trouble over the issue of law-keeping and circumcision. Hence, the trip to Jerusalem was not an evidence of submission to a governing body, but for the purpose of overturning the effect of the teaching of these Jerusalem troublemakers. Continuing the argument, he dealt with the second missionary tour of Paul and his new partner Silas, and emphasized again that it was from the Antioch congregation that they went forth, so that, again, the Antioch congregation was being used to send out missionaries of great eminence in Bible history that they returned to Antioch, and that from Antioch, Paul embarked on his third tour. Winding up the account from the book of Acts, the vice president said, And so, as we examine this account of these two most outstanding among the missionaries recorded in Bible history, we find that they were sent out especially by the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, a fact which the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society has upheld and accepted ever since the Society was formed. So we see how the Lord Jesus Christ is head of the church and has a right to act direct without whatever other organizations in view, no matter who they are. He is the head of the church. We can't challenge what he does. Those last three sentences spoken by the Vice President represent the position that had been taken in recent times by a number of witnesses. For taking that identical position, they were and are now labeled apostates. Again, however, those statements seemingly expressing deep respect for the superior authority of Christ actually conveyed a different concept, one placing emphasis on a different source of authority. For the vice president was at the very same time saying that to challenge the authority of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society and the authority of its president was to challenge the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not believe the thinking or action of the governing body appointed Committee of Five could in any way be representative of the direction of the head of the church, for the simple reason that he, Jesus Christ, had caused the corporation to be formed and was dealing through it. This seemed to me to be a case of mixed up reasoning. That this was the whole thrust of his talk could be seen in that, coming to the crux of the matter, he now applied all these points to modern times. He spoke of the rising up of Charles Taze Russell, his starting a new religious magazine, the Watchtower, and quote, who authorized this man to do that. Then on to Russell's incorporating Zion's Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. And here he added, quote, "...and mind you, friends, when he founded that society, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, he was not founding a do-nothing society or organization. The Lord Jesus Christ and God's Spirit had raised Russell up, he said, and also backed the formation of the corporation, quote, "...this active do-something society." The vice president then described the origin of the Gilead School and that it had been the corporation president's idea that, when informed, the board of directors had given its backing and that the president was to have supervision of the school. Nathan Knorr was sitting on the platform while the president gave his talk, and Fred Franz gestured toward him in the course of these following remarks. Quote, So you see, dear friends, that the board of directors of the New York Corporation, and of the Pennsylvania, as constituted back there, they had respect for the office of the president, and they did not treat the president of these organizations as a poker-faced, immobilized figurehead, presiding over a society, a a do-nothing society. From the start of the talk, I had thought this was the goal aimed at, and so it came as no surprise to me though the language used did. From this stage of the presentation, the tone of the talk now softened, and he went on to highlight that particular day, September seventh, 1975, saying, quote, And do you know what that means? According to this diary, this Hebrew diary from the land of Israel, referring now to a small booklet he held in his hand, Why, this is the second day of the month Tishri of the lunar year 1976, and do you know what that means? That here on this day of your graduation, why, it is the second day of the seventh millennium of man's existence here on earth. Isn't that something? Isn't that something grand? Applause here that the opening day of the seventh millennium of mankind's existence is signalized by the operation of the watchtower bible and tract society in full compliance of the terms of its charter sending out the fifty-ninth class of the gilead school for missionaries Jehovah God certainly has blessed it, and by its fruit, why, it has become known as an approved agency in the hand of Jehovah God, and so that there is no need to challenge the right and the authority of this society to send out missionaries. And friends, notice this, that just as God used the Antioch congregation to send out the two of the most outstanding missionaries of the first century, Paul and Barnabas, So today, Jehovah God is using the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of Pennsylvania in collaboration with the New York Corporation to send out further missionaries, and they are determined to keep on in that course. That's something very, very gratifying. The footnote reads, Following the talk, President Knorr spoke, visibly moved, and almost choked with emotion. He expressed great appreciation for what had been said, and I'm sure he was thoroughly sincere in his feelings. He then gave a pleasant talk on the wholesomeness of speech. There could be no question but that in the vice president's mind someone had thrown down the gauntlet in a challenge to the corporation presidency. By this talk the battle lines had been carefully and emphatically drawn. The corporation had its sovereign terrain and it was off limits to the governing body. The sad effect of all this was that many of his fellow members of the Governing Body were distinctly cast in the role of aggressor and openly displayed as disrespectful of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ vested in this approved agency, the Corporation. The guests present, parents and friends of the graduating class, were generally mystified by many of the things said and by the whole thrust of the talk, the biting language at times employed the bethel family members though having a vague idea of difficulties because of comments made by the president and vice-president when acting as head of the table now had reinforced their suspicion that there was indeed a quarrel going on in the governing body apparently a power struggle The contrast between this talk, and the talk using the metaphor of the dog and its tail, given four years previously, in which the dog represented the governing body, and the tail, which should be wagged and not do the wagging, represented the corporation, could hardly have been greater. They were given by the same man, yet they seemed to go in totally opposite directions. I would be less than honest if I did not admit that I left the auditorium that day feeling not only deeply disturbed, but also somewhat ill. It seemed that God's word was something that could be made to fit one argument, when circumstances made it advisable, and an opposite argument, when circumstances were different. This disturbed me more than any other aspect of the matter. As in Nathan Knorr's case, so too certain factors help in understanding Fred Franz's actions. In late 1941, when Judge Rutherford lay on his deathbed at Beth Serim in San Diego, California, he had called three men to his side, Nathan Knorr, Fred Franz, and Hayden Covington. Rutherford told them that he wanted them to carry on after his death and that they should stick together as a team. That action was reminiscent of Pastor Russell's will, though here given orally rather than in writing. Twenty years later, in 1961, in writing the book, Let Your Name Be Sanctified, Fred Franz alluded to that occasion when discussing the account of the passing on of Elijah's prophetic mantle, or official garment in the New World Translation, to his successor, Elisha. The footnote references 2 Kings 2 and 11 through 14 he presented this as a prophetic drama and stated quote, "Rutherford was abed on the Pacific coast when the United States of America was plunged into World War II Sunday December 7th 1941 two men of the anointed remnant one since 1913 and one since 1922 and one of the other sheep since 1934 were summoned from Brooklyn headquarters out to Rutherford's bedside at the home called Bethsarim in San Diego, California. On December 24, 1941, he gave these three his final instructions. For years he had been hoping to see the faithful prophets, including Elijah and Elisha, resurrected from the dead and installed as kingdom princes in all the earth in God's new world. But on Thursday, January 8, 1942, Rutherford died at 72 years of age as a faithful witness of Jehovah God, completely devoted to the interests of God's kingdom. He had proved himself fearless in support of Jehovah's side of the paramount issue of universal domination. As viewed from our present time, it appears that there the Elijah work passed to be succeeded by the Elisha work. It was as when Elijah and Elisha had crossed the Jordan River by means of a dividing of the waters to the east shore and were walking along awaiting the removal of Elijah. Elisha became heir to Elijah's official garment that had fallen from him. With it went its powers. The footnote references, Let Your Name Be Sanctified, published in 1961, pages 335-337. through When the governing body discussed the proposed reorganization, the vice president made direct reference to this assignment from the dying Judge Rutherford. I have no doubt that Fred Franz felt that a certain mentalizing had occurred at that time. As has been stated, Nathan Knorr succeeded Rutherford to the presidency. Hayden Covington, the big Texas lawyer who defended Jehovah's Witnesses in many cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, was asked by Nor to become vice-president. This, despite the fact that Covington made no profession then of being of the anointed class. This shows that neither Judge Rutherford nor, initially, Nathan Nor felt that being of the anointed was essential for directing the work worldwide. Covington's own testimony, given during the Walsh case in Scotland, indicates that it was not until some correspondence came in a couple of years later asking how this could be that he and Knorr talked about his not being of the anointed, and Covington decided he should resign. The footnote reads, from the official court record, pages 387 and 388. Relations between the two deteriorated as time went on, and Covington eventually left the headquarters staff to go into private practice. The footnote reads, Covington had had a severe struggle with alcoholism and had undergone one drying out treatment while still in headquarters service. He went through another at Spears Hospital in Dayton, Kentucky after being disfellowshipped in the 1970s and finally conquered the problem. He was reinstated and continued association until his death. Fred Franz was elected as vice president following Covington's resignation in 1944. Though the three heirs to Rutherford's deathbed transference of responsibility, which incidentally shows there was no governing body in operation, had now reduced to two, there was evidently still a definite feeling that a role in fulfilling prophecy was in effect. In 1978, at a large convention in Cincinnati, Ohio, when Fred Franz, now the Society's president, was asked to speak to the audience of over 30,000 persons about his life experiences as a witness, he chose to spend the bulk of the time discussing his relationship with the now-deceased Nathan Knorr, particularly emphasizing Judge Rutherford's dying words to them. It can very truthfully be said that the talk took on the aspect of a eulogy as Fred Franz described Knorr's qualities and stressed that he had stuck by Nathan Knorr right to the end, just as the judge had urged, that he was proud of having done so. Perhaps even more illuminating as regards this view of being mantalized was an expression made that same year, 1978, during a session of what was now the writing committee of the governing body. Present were Lyman Swingle, Ewart Chitty, Lloyd Berry, Fred Franz, and myself. A commentary on the letter of James was being written by Ed Dunlap, and Fred Franz had asked for an adjustment to Dunlap's discussion of James chapter 3, verse 1, where the disciple says, "...not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we shall receive heavier judgment." The material Dunlap had prepared said that this evidently was a warning against unqualified individuals seeking to serve as teachers simply because of a desire for prominence. Fred Franz asked for the elimination of most of the material, but gave no particular explanation for his objections except to ask in writing, If Jesus gave some to be teachers, how many was he to give? And since Jesus does the giving, How could James tell the men, not many of you should become teachers? How did James himself become a teacher? Since I had been assigned to oversee the project of the commentary's development, at the committee hearing, I asked Fred Franz to clarify his objection and tell us just what he thought was meant by this text. He stated that he believed it meant that it was God's will that there be just a few men in the entire Christian congregation who could rightly be called teachers. I inquired who such would be in our time. Speaking very calmly, his reply was, Well, I believe that I am. I have been here at headquarters for over fifty years, and have been involved in the field of writing and research during most of that time, so I believe that I am. And there are some other brothers throughout the earth who are. This response was another occasion when the effect was so startling that the words were, in effect, burned into my memory. I was not the only witness to them, since they were spoken before the other three members of the writing committee. By his remark, we had had identified for us only one teacher, on earth, by name, Fred Friends. Who the others were, we were left to speculate. As I told Lyman Swingle on more than one occasion thereafter, I regretted not having pursued the matter further by asking for names of the other teachers of our time, but the response left me momentarily speechless. In the same material in which he presented his objection to Dunlap's material, President Franz had also suggested the addition of the following points in the forthcoming commentary, here presented in a photocopy from page 2 of his write-up containing his initials. Quote, corrections and changes that should be made on James' commentary. James 3, page 2. After paragraph 5, I would insert the following paragraph. How James himself became a teacher we do not know, except that his half-brother, Jesus Christ, appeared to him after his resurrection. Not every dedicated baptized Christian man who may want to become a teacher does so out of a selfish, ambitious motive. Such a rightly motivated teacher was seen in the case of the 27-year-old editor and publisher of the magazine Zion's Watchtower and Herald of Christ's Presence in July of 1879. This brought memories of his Gilead graduation talk in 1975, when he had made clear his conviction that Christ Jesus had personally raised up Pastor Russell to carry out a special role. This material, three years later, indicated that he felt such personal, individual selection by Christ was continuing in other cases, with the result that only a few select persons were raised up as special teachers for the congregation. The above-suggested material bringing Russell into the picture was not used, however, and the information found on pages 99 to the top of 102 in the Commentary on the Letter of James is a replacement of Dunlap's material, which I wrote, so that President Franz's objections would be met. It was, in a certain sense, a refutation of his view, since Jesus' words at Matthew chapter 23, verse 8, But you... Do not you be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, whereas all you are brothers, seem to be particularly contrary to the idea of a very small number of men forming a somewhat exclusive group of specially selected teachers, the chosen few. The rewrite I submitted was approved in committee and published There is another reason why there was such an evident contradiction between certain bold, forceful statements made in print and the comparatively timid, puny reality actually existing at the time. The reason is that the officers of the corporation could rationalize that a small representative change or reform would suffice as substitution for, or a token of, a larger, genuinely meaningful change. As an example of this, the mere fact that in 1971, President Noor had decided to relinquish his monopoly of the chairmanship at the Bethel dining tables, sharing it with the other members of the board of directors, and also had decided to allow them to serve on a rotational basis as chairman of the governing body sessions, was viewed as all that was needed to demonstrate that the corporations and their officers were in fact directed by and submissive to the governing body, and that the dog was indeed wagging the tail. No other tangible action or significant change had taken place in the authority structure, nor was it viewed as necessary to fulfill the impressive picture painted. That Fred Franz could so view matters seems evident, particularly so, since, surprisingly, over 23 years earlier, back in 1944, he had written articles for the Watchtower that contained all the basic points on elders and overseers that appeared in the aid book. The footnote references the watchtower of October 15, 1944. See the book, Pay Attention to Daniel's Prophecy, 1999, pages 178 and 179. Despite this, no change whatsoever took place back then in the congregational arrangement. But it had been said, it had been published, and this was viewed as enough. In those articles, 1944 was presented as a marked year in Bible prophecy, and this mainly because an amendment had been passed whereby voting rights in the corporation would no longer be based on a ten-dollar donation as previously. Instead, a maximum number of 500 persons selected by the corporation's board would be the only ones with a right to vote. Anyone who has attended an annual meeting of the Watchtower Society where elections of directors takes place knows that it is extremely routine, and that voting is mainly a mere formality. The bulk of the voting members know virtually nothing of the inner workings of the organization, and have neither influence, voice, or control as to the policies and programs of the organization. The actual business part of a meeting usually takes no more than one hour, and then it is over until another year passes. Yet, the adoption of this amendment as to voting members was presented in articles in the Watchtower of December 1st, 1971, written by Fred Franz, as being an occasion of such significance and magnitude that it became a focal point in the explanation of the prophecy of Daniel 8.14 regarding the 2,300 prophetic days connected with the bringing of the sanctuary into its proper condition. I doubt that one witness in a thousand, if shown that verse today, would ever connect it up with 1944 and the corporation amendment made then. Yet that remains the official explanation of that prophecy to this day. It was another example of the ability to take an event of relatively minor effect, and then to clothe it with symbolic value, as being of great significance. On August 15, 1975, the committee of five finally presented its findings and recommendations. On behalf of the committee, I prepared a document of forty-five pages setting out the historical and particularly the scriptural reasons for recommending that the basically monarchical structure should change, plus nineteen pages outlining a system of governing body committees for directing the different areas of activity. The initial document ended with the following paragraph. Quote. All the deliberations of the Committee of Five have been made with much prayer and careful thought. We sincerely hope that God's Spirit has guided in the results and pray that they will be of some assistance to the body in reaching a decision. It is hoped that the adjustments recommended, if approved, will continue toward an even more pleasant, peaceful relationship among the members of the Governing Body, helping to eliminate the tension that at times has surfaced in our meetings. Psalms 133 1 James 3:17 and 18 it is also hoped that the recommended adjustments will if accepted serve to enhance and make yet more prominent the headship of Christ Jesus and the spirit of genuine brotherhood found among his disciples mark 9:50 those words expressed my sincere feelings and hope I could not see how they could be viewed as a challenge to Christ Jesus' direction of his congregation. The footnote reads, A covering letter, written by Leo Greenleys, accompanied the document and included this statement. Quote, Our recommendations are not motivated by dissatisfaction with the work as it has been administered heretofore, but mainly out of concern for the direction indicated by the Bible and Watchtower articles. We believe that once the scriptural principles are brought to bear on the matter, then the direction we should take is evident. The material came before the governing body, and in the session on September 10, 1975, it was now obvious that by far the majority favored the basic change recommended. However, a second committee of five was assigned to make final adjustments. The footnote reads, the second committee was composed of Milton Henshaw, Ewart Chitty, Lyman Swingle, Lloyd Berry, and Ted Gerratz. The body did not select either the President or Vice President to serve on this committee, since their opposition had been clearly stated. The President's comments at this point mainly expressed doubt as to the practicality of the change, the vice president, however, made plain that he viewed the presentation as, quote, an attack on the presidency. When the president's own motion was read out to him, he replied that Brother Knorr had made that statement under duress. Lyman Swingle expressed himself as feeling that all members of the body had respect for the president and did not view him as a poker-faced, immobilized figurehead of a do-nothing society, here using the vice president's language at the graduation exercises. He stressed that the president could still use his energy, drive, and initiative within the proposed arrangement. Later in the discussion, the vice president insisted that the Committee of Five's document did just what he had said was being done. He stated that at the coming annual meeting his vote would be for the corporation powers to continue and said that his talk at the Gilead graduation owed to a feeling of obligation to let the brothers know this so that they would not feel that a hoax had been practiced on them. After the second committee completed its recommendations and submitted these on December 3rd, 1975, the matter came down to a final vote. The footnote reads, About the only major change the second committee made in the recommendations of the first committee was that, in addition to a rotating chairmanship of each proposed governing body committee, there should be a permanent coordinator for each committee. The chairman called for a show of hands. All but two raised their hands in favor of the motion to implement the recommendations. The two who did not raise their hands were the president and the vice president. The following day, the body met again. The Vice President said he had taken no part in the discussion the day before, since, quote, he didn't want to have anything more to do with it. To participate would mean he was in favor, and he conscientiously could not do so. He referred repeatedly to Nathan Knorr as the chief executive of the society, the chief executive of the Lord's people on earth, and said that, quote, Jesus Christ is not down here on earth and so was using agents to carry out his will. Dan Sidlick, a square-built, deep-voiced man of Slavic descent, said he would have been happy to see Brother Nor or Brother Franz turn to the scriptures or even to the Watchtower publications to support their position, but that was not the case. Leo Greenlees remarked that if all the congregations were glad to submit to the direction of the governing body, why not the corporations also? The president basically confined his remarks to saying that he thought the corporation would act parallel to the governing body, but that, instead, the proposed arrangement subordinated the corporation, adding, which is probably correct. The vice president said he, too, thought the two organizations were going to run parallel, perhaps like Antioch and Jerusalem, and said, Quote, I never had in mind what the governing body wants to do now. It was obvious that the President and Vice President were maintaining their opposition. Lloyd Berry, his voice strained and shaking with emotion, now pleaded with them that they make the matter unanimous, since it was obvious it would pass anyway. Another vote was taken, and this time President Nor raised his hand, and the Vice President followed suit. Four years later, in 1979, in a governing body session, Fred Franz, now President, stated that his vote for the change back then was made under duress. I would agree. When Nathan Knorr conceded, Fred Franz felt compelled to join him. He went on to say that he had not been in favor of the change then, and that from that point forward he had just been watching to see what would result. Contrast the above information with the idealistic picture the Watchtower publications seek to convey. Quoting Isaiah 60 verse 17, which gives Jehovah's promise to replace bronze with gold, iron with silver, and to appoint peace as your overseer and righteousness as your taskmaster, the Watchtower of March fifteenth, 1990 contains articles describing progressive improvements and continual refinements in organization, as if organizational changes have come smoothly in an atmosphere of peace and harmony they present the fiction that a governing body was operative throughout watchtower history as has been shown the reality is quite different during the first seven decades of the organization's history no one spoke of or thought in terms of a governing body russell had arranged that after his death committees would handle matters and share authority and responsibility rutherford promptly and effectively eliminated these crushed any opposition and for the following two decades, autocratically exercised total control as corporation president. While moderating the existing atmosphere, Nor retained that total control until a sort of palace revolution stripped the corporation presidency of its power. As of 1976, the authority passed from one man to a number of men, and after nearly half a century, committees once again became operative. This back-and-forth scenario hardly fits the picture of a harmonious process of, quote, progressive improvements and continual refinements. The Watchtower's 1993 history book, Jehovah's Witnesses, Proclaimers of God's Kingdom, in its foreword, comments that, while others have written about Jehovah's Witnesses, this was not always impartially. It then states, quote, the editors of this volume have endeavored to be objective and to present a candid history. The book, on pages 108 and 109, describes the 1975-1976 major restructuring of the administration as, quote, one of the most significant organizational readjustments in the modern-day history of Jehovah's Witnesses. See pages 83 of this chapter for the text of those pages. How objective and candid is their presentation of that major event? The change is presented as if achieved in peaceful harmony. If the anonymous editors of the book were themselves ignorant of the months of acrimonious inner struggle that preceded this change, it is certain that every one of the hundreds of men and women who were members of the Brooklyn headquarters staff at the time, and who heard the angry expressions of the president in morning text discussions, knew that the change did not come peacefully. Of all these, the members of the governing body knew most intimately the intensity of the struggle. As of 1993, when the history book was published, all those then members of the body had personally lived through that experience. They knew that the change from a one-man rule to that of a body rule was achieved in the face of intense, even caustic opposition from both the President and the Vice-President, and that the unanimous approving of the change the history book refers to was achieved only as a result of these two men, Nor and Fred friends, being faced with obvious defeat and finally capitulating, reluctantly and under duress as the Vice-President himself expressed it. Any candor in this published account is clearly conspicuous for its absence. To allow this fictional picture of peaceful, harmonious change to be published does not speak well for the moral standards of those knowing the reality. The preceding chart, prepared by the Second Committee of Five, shows the arrangement that went into effect on January 1, 1976. John Booth, a member of the First Committee of Five, and in early life a farmer from upstate New York, A gentleman who thought deeply, but normally had difficulty in expressing those thoughts well, seemed to have best described what now became the case with the corporation. In one of the Committee of Five's first meetings, he had said, A corporation is just a legal tool. It's like a pen lying on a desk. When I want to use the pen, I pick it up. When I'm finished, I just lay it down until I want to use it again. That now became the position of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of Pennsylvania and its subsidiary corporations. Inevitably, that meant that the power of the presidency was decimated and virtually disappeared, that office now serving an almost purely legal function. When Nathan Nord died, the governing body considered the matter of his successor. The most likely candidates were Vice President Franz and Milton Henschel, who had worked closely with Nord in administration. Henschel moved that Fred Friends become president, and this was unanimously approved. When replacement for Nor's position as coordinator of the publishing committee then came up, Henschel seemed the logical successor, but Fred Friends, now president, spoke in favor of Lloyd Berry. Relations between Knorr and Henschel had been poor in recent years, and in one interview with the first committee of five, Knorr had implied that he felt Berry could take over his job, his presidential work, if necessary. Evidently, Fred Franz viewed this somewhat in the light of Judge Rutherford's deathbed instructions, and felt that some transfer of mantle to Berry was thus in order, but the body voted Henschel into the position. An article in Time magazine reporting the election of Fred Franz as the new president stated, "Though few people know his name, he has acquired more than papal power over 2.2 million souls around the world." The footnote references Time, July eleventh, nineteen seventy-seven, page sixty-four. That statement could hardly have been more wrong. It would have been true a year or so earlier. But the Office of President, though still carrying a measure of prestige and prominence, was no longer the earthwide power base it had been. Few persons outside the body could appreciate how drastic a change had taken place. If the President previously had indeed had power of papal scope, though with none of the trappings and pomp of the papacy, the branch overseers had been equivalent in domain to archbishops, each being the quote, presiding minister of Christianity for and within the territory to which he had been appointed. The footnote reads, Quoted from pages 5 and 6 of the branch office procedure book, a manual for all branch offices in effect at the time. Here, too, a change entered as branch committees took on this responsibility. The years of 1976 and 1977 brought some pleasant moments. A very different climate seemed to be in evidence at the international headquarters, a spirit of greater brotherliness, openness, and equality. Some compared it to the window that Pope John Twenty-Third had opened in the Catholic Church to let a breath of fresh air in. The new governing body committees put into effect a number of changes to improve Bethel family circumstances, both in Brooklyn and among the more than 90 branches. Greater consideration was given to financial needs of the so-called rank-and-file members, to the special needs of women, and to those who were older. During 1976, a series of meetings was held with respected and esteemed men in various categories. Representatives from the branches around the world were first brought in, then traveling representatives across the United States. Finally, congregation elders, representing the different sectors of the country, were invited to Brooklyn. In all cases, there was a freedom of discussion and expression that most found refreshingly different from any experienced in the past. On the congregational level, I doubt that much of this was felt, since the many suggestions made by the men in these meetings were not implemented to any major extent. Still, many witnesses expressed appreciation that, for a time at least, published material gave stronger emphasis to the authority of the scriptures and the headship of Jesus Christ and less to the authority of a human organization. They felt overall that a more moderate, balanced, compassionate approach was being taken. One long-time witness put it, quote, I used to feel like I had to do things, now I'm beginning to feel like I want to do them. The sessions of the governing body manifested this changed atmosphere in some measure. The passing of the much publicized year of nineteen seventy five without the hoped-for arrival of a millennial jubilee doubtless had a somewhat humbling effect as dogmatism diminished perceptibly. More caution as to imposing new rulings on the lives of people and less inclination to categorize specific actions as disfellowshipping offenses were reflected in the voting though never in a complete sense it was during this year 1976 that Nathan Knorr's health began to deteriorate yet as long as he was able to attend he shared in discussions and though clearly not happy with the changes made showed a generally cooperative and helpful attitude his expressions at times helped to overcome extreme points of view though rarely based on scriptural argument they reflected his common sense approach to matters throughout most of this period vice president franz preferred to sit and listen only occasionally participating in discussions and almost without fail what he had to say would come toward the close of the discussion just before voting took place by that point the general consensus of thinking was fairly evident based on the individual comments made and often his remarks were opposite to the trend of the majority perhaps nothing illustrates more strikingly the changed thinking of the body during this period as does the fact that the voting while sometimes showing a shift due to the influence of the vice-president's last-minute remarks often went contrary to his expressions In the main, however, during this period he gave no indication of his thinking until the customary show of hands was called for, and, as the official minutes record, there were numerous cases where the vote read 16, or whatever the figure might be, in favor, 1 abstention, that 1 being the vice president. This was generally where issues involved moderations of policy regarding so-called disfellowshipping matters. Matters in the secular or semi-secular field, such as purchases of property, office procedures, or appointments to membership in branch committees, were usually unanimous. When the new arrangement was voted in, I found it hard to believe that such a major change in the authority structure had actually taken place, particularly in view of the intense opposition it had met from the most prominent men in the organization, as well as from some of their close associates outside the body. My earnest hope was that the leveling and equalizing effect of the change would allow for greater moderation, a reduction of dogmatism, a greater concern for individuals and their individual circumstances and problems, and perhaps someday the elimination of the authoritarian approach that produced so many rules and assumed such great control over the personal lives of people. As has been noted, some of that came, it came for a while. Then, within about two years, like a chilling breeze in late autumn that signals the approach of winter coldness, evidence of a very clear swing back to earlier approaches began surfacing again and again.